freedom of speech and of the press. The First Amendment broadly protects the rights of free speech and free press. Free speech means the free and public expression of opinions without censorship, interference and restraint by the government. The term freedom of speech embedded in the First Amendment encompasses the decision what to say as well as what not to say. Free press means the right of individuals to express themselves through publication and dissemination of information, ideas and opinions without interference, constraint or prosecution by the government. The Supreme Court of the United States characterized the rights of free speech and free press as fundamental personal rights and liberties and noted that the exercise of these rights lies at the foundation of free government by free men. In Bond v. Floyd, 1966, a case involving the constitutional shield around the speech of elected officials, the Supreme Court declared that the First Amendment's central commitment is that, in the words of New York Times Company v. Sullivan, 1964, debate on public issues should be uninhibited, robust, and wide open. The court further explained that just as erroneous statements must be protected to give freedom of expression the breathing space it needs to survive, so statements criticizing public policy and the implementation of it must be similarly protected. The Supreme Court in Chicago Police Department v. Mosley, 1972, said. But, above all else, the First Amendment means that the government has no power to restrict expression because of its message, its ideas, its subject matter, or its content. To permit the continued building of our politics and culture, and to assure self-fulfillment for each individual, our people are guaranteed the right to express any thought, free from government censorship. The essence of this forbidden censorship is content control. Any restriction on expressive activity because of its content would completely undercut the profound national commitment to the principle that debate on public issues should be uninhibited, robust, and wide open. The level of protections with respect to free speech and free press given by the First Amendment is not limitless. As stated in his concurrence in Chicago Police Department v. Mosley, 1972, Chief Justice Warren E. Berger said. Numerous holdings of this court attest to the fact that the First Amendment does not literally mean that we are guaranteed the right to express any thought, free from government censorship. This statement is subject to some qualifications, as for example those of Roth v. United States, 1957, Chaplinsky v. New Hampshire, 1942. Refer also to New York Times Company v. Sullivan, 1964. Attached to the rights of free speech and free press is the core rights to utter and to print are several peripheral rights that make these core rights more secure. The peripheral rights encompass not only freedom of association, including privacy in one's associations, but also, in the words of Griswold v. Connecticut, 1965, the freedom of the entire university community, for example, the right to distribute, the right to receive, and the right to read, as well as freedom of inquiry, freedom of thought, and freedom to teach. The United States Constitution protects, according to the Supreme Court in Stanley v. Georgia, 1969, the right to receive information and ideas, regardless of their social worth, and to be generally free from governmental intrusions into one's privacy and control of one's thoughts. As stated by the court in Stanley, if the First Amendment means anything, it means that a state has no business telling a man, sitting alone in his own house, what books he may read or what films he may watch. Our whole constitutional heritage revels at the thought of giving the government the power to control men's minds. Wording of the Clause The First Amendment bars Congress from abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press. U.S. Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens commented about this phraseology in a 1993 journal article, I emphasize the word in the term the freedom of speech because the definite article suggests that the draftsman intended to immunize a previously identified category or subset of speech, Stevens said that, otherwise, the clause might absurdly immunize things like false testimony under oath. Like Stevens, journalist Anthony Lewis wrote, 
the word that can be read to mean what was understood at the time to be included in the concept of free speech. But what was understood at the time is not 100% clear. In the late 1790s, the lead author of the speech and press clauses, James Madison, argued against narrowing this freedom to what had existed under English common law. The practice in America must be entitled to much more respect. In every state, probably in the Union, the press has exerted a freedom in canvassing the merits and measures of public men, of every description, which has not been confined to the strict limits of the common law. Madison wrote this in 1799, when he was in a dispute about the constitutionality of the Alien and Sedition Laws, which was legislation enacted in 1798 by President John Adams' Federalist Party to ban seditious libel. Madison believed that legislation to be unconstitutional, and his adversaries in that dispute, such as John Marshall, advocated the narrow freedom of speech that had existed in the English common law. Speech critical of the government. The Supreme Court declined to rule on the constitutionality of any federal law regarding the free speech clause until the 20th century. For example, the Supreme Court never ruled on the Alien and Sedition Acts, three Supreme Court justices writing circuit presided over sedition trials without indicating any reservations. The leading critics of the law, Vice President Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, argued for the acts on constitutionality based on the First Amendment and other constitutional provisions. Jefferson succeeded Adams as president, in part due to the unpopularity of the latter's sedition prosecutions, he and his party quickly overturned the acts and pardoned those imprisoned by them. In the majority opinion in New York Times Company v. Sullivan, 1964, the court noted the importance of this public debate as a precedent in First Amendment law and ruled that the acts had been unconstitutional. Although the Sedition Act was never tested in this court, the attack upon its validity has carried the day in the court of history. World War I during the patriotic fervor of World War I and in the first Red Scare, the Espionage Act of 1917 imposed a maximum sentence of 20 years for anyone who caused or attempted to cause insubordination, disloyalty, mutiny, or refusal of duty in the military or naval forces of the United States. Specifically, the Espionage Act of 1917 states that if anyone allows any enemies to enter or fly over the United States and obtain information from a place connected with the national defense, they will be punished. Hundreds of prosecutions followed. In 1919, the Supreme Court heard four appeals resulting from these cases, Schenck v. United States, Debs v. United States, Frohort v. United States, and Abrams v. United States. In the first of these cases, Socialist Party of America official Charles Schenck had been convicted under the Espionage Act for publishing leaflets urging resistance to the draft. Schenck appealed, arguing that the Espionage Act violated the free speech clause of the First Amendment. In Schenck v. United States, the Supreme Court unanimously rejected Schenck's appeal and affirmed his conviction. Debate continued over whether Schenck went against the right to freedom of speech protected by the First Amendment. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., writing for the court, explained that the question in every case is whether the words used are used in such circumstances and are of such a nature as to create a clear and present danger that they will bring about the substantive evils that Congress has a right to prevent. One week later, in for work v. United States, the court again upheld an Espionage Act conviction, this time that of a journalist who had criticized U.S. involvement in foreign wars. In Debs v. United States, the court elaborated on the clear and present danger test established in Schenck. On June 16, 1918, Eugene V. Debs, a political activist, delivered a speech in Canton, Ohio, in which he spoke of most loyal comrades were paying the penalty to the working class, these being Wagenicht, Baker, and Ruthenberg, who had been convicted of aiding and abetting another in failing to register for the draft. Following his speech, Debs was charged and convicted under the Espionage Act. In upholding his conviction, 
The court reasoned that although he had not spoken any words that posed a clear and present danger, taken in context, the speech had a natural tendency and a probable effect to obstruct the recruiting services. In Abrams v. United States, four Russian refugees appealed their conviction for throwing leaflets from a building in New York. The leaflets argued against President Woodrow Wilson's intervention in Russia against the October Revolution. The majority upheld their conviction, but Holmes and Justice Louis Brandeis dissented, holding that the government had demonstrated no clear and present danger in the force political advocacy. Extending protections. The Supreme Court denied a number of free speech clause claims throughout the 1920s, including the appeal of a labor organizer, Benjamin Gitlow, who had been convicted after distributing a manifesto calling for a revolutionary dictatorship of the proletariat. In Gitlow v. New York, 1925, the court upheld the conviction, but a majority also found that the First Amendment applied to state laws as well as federal laws, via the Due Process Clause of the Fourteenth Amendment. Holmes and Brandeis dissented in several more cases in this decade, however, advancing the argument that the Free Speech Clause protected a far greater range of political speech than the court had previously acknowledged. In Whitney v. California, 1927, in which Communist Party USA organizer Charlotte Anita Whitney had been arrested for criminal syndicalism, Brandeis wrote a dissent in which he argued for broader protections for political speech. Those who won our independence, believe that freedom to think as you will and to speak as you think are means indispensable to the discovery and spread of political truth, that without free speech an assembly discussion would be futile, that with them discussion affords ordinarily adequate protection against the dissemination of noxious doctrine, that the greatest menace to freedom is an inert people, that public discussion is a political duty, and that this should be a fundamental principle of the American government. In Herndon v. Lowry, 1937, the court heard the case of African-American Communist Party organizer Angelo Herndon, who had been convicted under the slave insurrection statute for advocating black rule in the southern United States. The court reversed Herndon's conviction, holding that Georgia had failed to demonstrate any clear and present danger in Herndon's political advocacy. The clear and present danger test was again invoked by the majority in the 1940 Thornhill v. Alabama decision in which a state anti-picketing law was invalidated. The importance of freedom of speech in the context of clear and present danger was emphasized in Terminiello v. City of Chicago, 1949, where the Supreme Court noted that the vitality of civil and political institutions in society depends on free discussion. Democracy requires free speech because it is only through free debate and free exchange of ideas that government remains responsive to the will of the people and peaceful change is effected. Restrictions on free speech are only permissible when the speech at issue is likely to produce a clear and present danger of a serious substantive evil that rises far above public inconvenience, annoyance, or unrest. Justice William O. Douglas wrote for the court that a function of free speech under our system is to invite dispute. It may indeed best serve its high purpose when it induces a condition of unrest, creates dissatisfaction with conditions as they are, or even stirs people to anger. Although the court referred to the clear and present danger test in a few decisions following Thornhill, the bad tendency test was not explicitly overruled, and the clear and present danger test was not applied in several subsequent free speech cases involving incitement to violence. In 1940, Congress enacted the Smith Act, making it illegal to advocate the propriety of overthrowing or destroying any government in the United States by force and violence. The statute provided law enforcement a tool to combat communist leaders. Eugene Dennis was convicted in the Foley Square trial for attempting to organize a communist party. In Dennis v. United States, 1951, the court upheld the Smith Act. Chief Justice Fred M. Vinson relied on Holmes' clear and present danger test as adapted by learned hand, in each case must ask whether the gravity of the evil, discounted by its improbability, justifies such invasion of free speech as necessary to avoid the danger.
Clearly, Vincent suggested, clear and present danger did not intimate that before the government may act, it must wait until the putsch is about to be executed, the plans have been laid and the signal is awaited. In a concurring opinion, Justice Felix Frankfurter proposed a balancing test, which soon supplanted the clear and present danger test. The demands of free speech in a democratic society as well as the interest in national security are better served by candid and informed weighing of the competing interests, within the confines of the judicial process. In Yates v. United States, 1957, the Supreme Court limited the Smith Act prosecutions to advocacy of action rather than advocacy in the realm of ideas. Advocacy of abstract doctrine remained protected while speech explicitly inciting the forcible overthrow of the government was punishable under the Smith Act. During the Vietnam War, the court's position on public criticism of the government changed drastically. Though the court upheld a law prohibiting the forgery, mutilation, or destruction of draft cards in United States v. O'Brien, 1968, fearing that burning draft cards would interfere with the smooth and efficient functioning of the draft system, the next year, the court handed down its decision in Brandenburg v. Ohio, 1969, expressly overruling Whitney v. California. Brandenburg discarded the clear and present danger test introduced in Schenck and further eroded Dennis. Now the Supreme Court referred to the right to speak openly of violent action and revolution in broad terms. Decisions have fashioned the principle that the constitutional guarantees of free speech and free press do not allow a state to forbid or proscribe advocacy of the use of force or law violation except where such advocacy is directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to incite or cause such action. In Cohen v. California, 1971, the court voted reverse the conviction of a man wearing a jacket reading fuck the draft in the corridors of a Los Angeles County courthouse. Justice John Marshall Harlan too wrote in the majority opinion that Cohen's jacket fell in the category of protected political speech despite the use of an expletive, one man's vulgarity is another man's lyric. The text of this podcast is sourced from the Wikipedia Foundation under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The written text has been altered for voice presentation. To view the modified and original text versions visit thelegalpages.com. The content of this podcast is presented for informational purposes only, and is not intended to be legal or professional advice. The Wikipedia Foundation is not affiliated with this podcast.